story is told of a little boy who was sick on Palm Sunday, and so he stayed at home with his mom. His father returned from church that morning, and he had a palm branch in his hand. The little boy, quite naturally, was curious, and so he said, Daddy, why do you have this palm branch? His dad said, well, you see, when Jesus came into town, everybody waved palm branches to honor him, so we got these palm branches today. Little guy said, ah, nuts. The one day I miss church, Jesus shows up. (laughs) Well, today is Palm Sunday. It is the Sunday before Easter, and this religious holiday commemorates the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem in the days before his crucifixion. When everybody was shouting, Hosanna, and I know Mark Eastman's class knows the meaning of that. Where's some, point somebody out in your class. They're going to tell me what Hosanna means. Dylan should know what does Hosanna mean. Uh-oh. Okay, what he said was, <laughs> translating from silence, uh, save me or keep me or preserve me. They shouted, Hosanna, blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Now, you also know from the reading, you know, they covered the ground before he came, not only with leaves, but with their coats as well. You need to understand that covering the path of someone thought worthy of the highest honor with branches and leaves was a common custom in the Middle Eastern world. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all say that the people gave Jesus that honor. But it is only in the Gospel of John that he actually mentions the palm branches. The palm branches that you got today, and even as the children processed with them, and even as you waved them again, these are a symbol of triumph and victory. On the screen or in your outline, you'll see a passage from the book of Revelation. We looked at that this morning, I think, even in our Bible class. It says, after this I looked, and John is is telling what he sees in heaven. It says, I looked, and before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. So the detail of these palm branches, along with the crowd greeting Jesus as he entered Jerusalem by waving those branches and then carpeting the path with them, that's where we get the name for this Sunday, Palm Sunday. But you know, even in the Old Testament, there is a prophecy that talks about it. You also see this passage. It comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Way back in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus arrives on the scene, The prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I have preached this text probably almost every Palm Sunday as long as I can remember. I'm not going to tell you that I couldn't think of anything new to say, but traditionally, We talk about that triumphal entry. We talk about the symbolism of the palms. I've even thought about, one time somebody said, you know, we should not have contemporary music in church. And I I pointed to this passage because Jesus said, you know, when the Pharisees said, 
Tell them to quit making this loud music. Jesus said, if they don't do it, even the rocks will cry out. See, that's rock music. I thought about preaching that, but I, I didn't. Instead, I want to jump a little bit ahead of this story of the triumphal entry into what happens kind of along with it. I want to get you past the big palm-waving event and talk about the tears of Palm Sunday. I don't know if you caught it, but in verse 41 that Nancy read to you before, it says that Jesus saw the city. He would have stopped on top of a hill, and Jerusalem was built upon a bunch of hills. He saw the city. He looked at beautiful Jerusalem, no doubt could see the temple kind of glistening in the sunlight. It was a breathtaking view from the Mount of Olives. And then there was all of this pomp and pageantry that was associated with having the Passover festival. Jesus looked at that splendor and awe, but guess what? He saw beyond it. He saw beyond the pomp and the pageantry, the festivals and the celebration. Jesus saw beyond the outward appearance. And what he saw made him weep. Now you might wonder, when Jesus saw this beautiful city and saw that they were preparing for a Passover event, what would cause him to cry? Well, he cried, he wept, because the people did not understand the significance of what was going on that day. They didn't understand who he was or why he had come to this earth. And these people who were shouting their hosannas and blessed be the person who comes in the name of the Lord would be some of the same people who later that week would be crying out, crucify him. They rejected him totally. Have you ever thought that today Jesus might actually look down from heaven and see what's going on in your life? or my life, or the life of this church, or the life of this country, would he smile or would he cry? I sometimes believe that Jesus looks at our lives and he weeps. Sometimes Jesus is grieved by our lives because we would rather reject him than give him our all. We'd rather live for ourselves than to live for him. We'd rather be selfish than being selfless. We'd rather live and follow the ways of this world than to live for his kingdom. He's grieved, I think, sometimes when he sees in our lives because we tend to be always looking at the outside. Remember, even when the Israelites felt like they needed a king, what did they look for? They looked for somebody who was tall, dark, and handsome. They picked out King Saul. I always... You've heard me say this before. I think he was like Tom Selleck. Good-looking guy. Said he was heads and shoulders above everybody else. You know, and so they, they couldn't understand why Samuel would then anoint this little pink-faced boy called David. I mean, that's why Saul later said, you know, what, what, or Goliath says later, you know, who are you, some little kid with a stick that's going to beat me like you would a puppy? But see, God doesn't look at the outside. God looks at the heart. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus is talking to a whole bunch of different churches, but there's a, there's a phrase in that that leaps out. It says, I know your deeds. That's kind of a frightening thought, that Jesus looks at the church and he says, I know what's going on. See, God knows what's going on in this church. He also knows what's not going on in this church. 
God sees the churches of this world and sees what's going on in them. And he also sees what's not going on in them. That's because Jesus is able to look beyond the facade that hides inward sins. Jesus is able to look beyond those smiles that hide those inner tears. Jesus looks beyond the smiling faces that hide the inner pain. See, Jesus looks way beyond the outside. But second, he also cares about that pain. If Jesus could look into your heart today, what would he find, joy or sorrow? I have a feeling in a group this size that the answer would be maybe a little of each. Pretty happy for the most part, many people would say. Very happy for the most part, many would say. And some people would say, well, it's okay, but... And then would add their points of sorrow. Some of the other things in their lives, some of the pain. Well, if that's you... Jesus cares about that. He he sees beyond what you have put up, your mask. And he sees all the way down to the pain. Back in that verse, it says that Jesus looked and he saw the city, and then he wept over it. See, Jesus' primary concern that day was their sin and their rejection of him. I don't know if you ever thought about this, that sin brings pain. I mean, all the way from the Garden of Eden... Every act of disobedience brings pain. Do you remember the movie that, the, uh, that uh, Mel Gibson had a couple of years ago when Jesus was crucified? Many people went and saw that movie. And if you remember when Jesus' hands were there and they drove that spike through them, Mel Gibson said later that he actually did that in the movie to remind himself that his sins had nailed Jesus to the cross. His sins had caused pain in the life of his Christ. See, all sin, I don't care, big sins, little sins, you you name your sins, all sins are relative, but all sins have negative consequences. All sin brings things like guilt and shame into people's lives. As I have often said, sin will take you further than you ever want to go. Now, you might ask, how far could sin take me? Well, how about this far? The Bible says the soul that sins, it will surely die. See, if you think you're getting away with sin, friends, you're not. We cannot sin and win. Every kick in life has a little bit of a kickback. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian author, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia and good books like that, said pain is not good in itself. And to that we'd all go, yeah, no kidding. Pain is not good in itself. What is good in any painful experience is this. And he mentions two things. He said, for the one who suffers, it's his submission to the will of God. And for the spectator, the one who sees that, the compassion aroused by the acts of mercy to which it leads. God sees beyond the outside. And he cares about the pain that we have brought on ourselves and others with our sin. The third thing is, he sees and knows your potential. Go back to that scripture again. It said, he saw the city and he wept. And then he said, if you, even you, had ever only known 
Jerusalem was called the city of David. Jerusalem had been the city of blessing. But now it was on the path to being the city of war and grief. People could stand and look at that city from the Mount of Olives and say, man, what potential there had been for the city of God, but now what? I want you all to know that God knows your full potential. He doesn't look at what you are so much as what you can become with his help. Some of the saddest words that have ever been spoken and some of the saddest words that have ever been written are words like these. It might have been. I could have been. I could have done. It's that woulda, coulda, shoulda kind of living. But see, friends, God knows what you can achieve. I'd say never underestimate what God can do in your life. I've seen that in so many people's lives. I've had conversations with people who have told me about, let's say, a child of theirs who becomes pregnant out of wedlock, and, and they say to me, how is this young girl ever going to get anywhere in life with two strikes against her, not being married and having this little baby? Well, guess what? God can do some pretty amazing things, even starting from that. If you don't believe that, next time you see my daughter, talk to her and ask her whether God cannot take what seems like two strikes against you and turn them into something really good. God sees your potential. God knows your potential. And God wants to grow your potential. Let me tell you a story about somebody. A young girl, she's 16 years old. Her name was Eliza. At age 16, she married a 20-year-old tailor. He had never been to school. Now, uh, others might have written off his education as a lost cause, but Eliza didn't. She taught that 20-year-old husband of hers how to read and to write and to spell. Now, those were days were very difficult, but he proved to be a pretty good learner. In fact, he learned so well that he was actually elected president of the United States of America. When he ran for his second term, he lost, but he, he didn't give up. So instead, he ran for United States senator. Anybody know who that was? It was our 17th president, Andrew Johnson. See, Eliza, that young woman, saw what Andrew could become, just like God sees what you can become. He sees your potential. Now, I know a lot of people say, oh, but, but Pastor, I've blown it in life. I've sinned, or I've made a mistake, or somehow I've fallen short, or I really goofed up somewhere along the line. Every time anybody says that to me, I say, welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. If there's anybody here who doesn't think they've fallen short, or goofed up, or messed up, or whatever, I remember some guy one time saying, if you feel that you have no faults, that makes another one. See, friends, God has a great future planned for all of us. Jeremiah 29, 11, and 12 talks about, I've, I've got a future for you. If you come to me, you pray to me, I give you a hope and a future. A great future always beats a great past every time. See, he sees beyond our outside appearances. He cares about the pain and the burdens that we carry. He knows our full potential. And the fourth thing is, 
He really desires to bring peace to our lives. Jesus saw the city. He wept over the city. He said, if you, even you, had only known this day what would bring you peace. I don't know about you, but the word peace is really a beautiful word. Peace. It's what nations and governments chase after. Peace. Jerusalem was often referred to as the city of peace. But if you paid attention to the words at the tail end of our text today, that city of peace was not going to be peaceful very long. It said there were going to be people coming and building ramparts against them and circle them and their children inside out, and then they were going to tear down that city and not leave one stone on top of another. The reason was because they had rejected God. And yet, even in the midst of that, God has some of the most wonderful words about peace. Let me read this to you from John chapter 14. It says, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Friends, God wants all of us to have peace in our lives, but he only wants that kind of peace that he gives. Charles Wesley, who is the great hymn writer, wrote, I rest beneath the almighty shade. My griefs expire, my troubles cease. Thou, Lord, on whom my soul is stayed, will keep me still in perfect peace. The peace that Jesus gives is not an absence of pain. Peace that Jesus gives is not an absence of trouble. Rather, peace is the confidence that Jesus is there in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your trouble. Peace is not the absence of trouble. Peace is not the absence of pain. Peace is understanding that Jesus is present in the midst of that trouble and pain. In 1555, the year 1555, Nicholas Ridley was burned at the stake because of his witness for Jesus. On the night before he was to be led out and burned at that stake, his brother offered to come and spend that last night in his prison cell to bring him assistance and comfort. But Nicholas said, It's not necessary, because tonight I intend to go to bed and sleep like a baby. Sleep like never before. Now, how could a man facing death sleep like a baby? It was because he knew the peace of God. He could rest in the strength of the everlasting arms of his Savior to meet his needs. And guess what? Holy Week and everything that goes with it, from that triumphal entry to the tears of Jesus, to the, to the giving of his body and blood, to his death on the cross, and then his glorious resurrection, reminds us again, friends, that he sees beyond our outward appearance. He sees more than what we show to everyone else. He sees into our heart. It shows that he is a Savior who senses our pain, who feels our pain 
and yet wants to grow you into what he's created you to be. And he longs to bring peace into your heart. This last Wednesday, the last message, I talked about Christian cliches. And sometimes when people are in trouble, we toss out a Christian cliche. The one I tossed out the other day was, Jesus lives. That's kind of a cliche, but guess what? It's the best one we've got. Because in the midst of everything, in the midst of our pain, our suffering, whatever's going on in our life, the one thing that will get us through is the fact that Jesus lives. That's what our whole celebration is about this week. Jesus lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you look beyond the masks that we put up for other people. There's so many times when we hide what's going on inside, but yet you see it all. We say that we can't tell anyone else about it, and yet you already know. But I just pray that we could be honest with you and honest with caring Christian friends. For we have friends, Lord, who follow you, who have experienced pain as well and who would care about our pain and would share it. But even better, we know that you care and that you can do something about it. We are thankful for those people you put into our lives who encourage us, who are like Barnabas, who always kind of look out for the best and are giving us encouragement. But Father, you know our full potential as well. You are the one who created us. You are the one that knit us together and in our mother's wombs, you have a plan for us, a hope and a future. And Lord, in this veil of tears that we wander through, you still long to give us peace. It's not the peace that this world gives, but it's the peace that only you can give. Peace in knowing that Jesus lives. Amen.